now they're making Ghostbusters with only women. What's going on? Shut up and sit down. We will respond with that timeless creed that sums up the spirit of a people. Yes, we can. We choose to go to the moon in this decade and do the other thing, not because they are easy, but because they are hard. Freedom and the dignity of the individual have been more available and assured here than in any other place on Earth. I know the human being and fish can coexist peacefully. Read my lips. And then we're going to Washington, D.C. to take back the White House. Ah! I love the poorly educated. We're the smartest people. We're the most loyal people. I know I said in the last episode that we were doing a, a real normal episode. I was completely lying to all of you. We're, we're taping this early. <laughs> but it's, You're the it's, worst. I am the worst person. It's just terrible. Um, but, uh, wow, I lost my train of thought. This is going to be hard. <laughs> <laughs> we'll get it together. Doing this two days in a row is, takes a lot of mental effort. Um Welcome back, guys. Uh, Barstool Politics. I'm your host, Nick McGuire, joined as always by uh, Dr. Bill Muck from North Central College and Dr. Phil Barker from Keene State College. And we have our original super guest, Dr. Suzanne Chad, with us today hello. as well. Hello, gentlemen. Thanks, Thanks for coming for back. Today. The OG yeah. super guest. Right. I'll take it. I've never been the OG anything. <laughs> so I love it. I'm going to put that on my uh, CV. Yes, Twitter <laughs> handle. <laughs> I should. Um, before we get started, all of the fun stuff that you guys are used to. If you have questions, comments, beer suggestions, things you want us to talk about, follow us on Twitter at Barstool Paul, P O L, Facebook at Barstool Politics. Uh, beers that we try, you can find on Untapped on iOS or Android. Uh, just look for Barstool Politics on there. The podcast, uh, Spotify, iTunes, SoundCloud, Stitcher, Google Play Music, uh, most major podcasting platforms. Podcasting platforms. Uh, and then for returning listeners and new listeners, because there's always tons and tons and tons of you, um, we are partnered with uh, Predicted, which is a real money political prediction market, uh, pretty much a stock market for politics where you can uh, buy and sell shares in future political events. Um, we use it all the time to uh, kind of get an idea of what people are thinking about current events, uh, the likelihood of... Um, certain events, uh, elections, things like that. We're going to talk about the uh, uh, Democratic uh, presidential candidates. Deep dive uh, today. Deep Lots dive today. Yeah. Lots of that. <laughs> um, so it's, it's, it's really fun. What's nice for our listeners, uh, if you open up a uh, new account, uh, you'll receive up to a $20 match on your first deposit. So open up a $20 account. Predicted will match that $20, giving you $40 to use on Predicted. Um, just like I said, use the promo link uh, predicted.org slash promo slash barsupal20 uh, and check it out. Like I said, it's a lot of fun. Thanks, Predicted. Um, before we get started, uh, like I said, we're, we're taping this early. We are, we're all very, very uh, important, busy people, so we have things going on next week. I don't. <laughs> I actually don't either. But, um, some kind of late breaking news. Um, Julian Assange has been uh, arrested by the UK authorities and kicked out of the Ecuadorian embassy uh, in London. Uh, and Omar al-Bashir uh, has been ousted in Sudan. Both really kind of... Big stories. Big stories, yeah. Bashir's been there for 30, uh, 30 years, uh, uh, wanted for uh, genocide and crimes against humanity by the International Criminal Court. I mean, this is a long time coming. So. Yeah. Just, uh, yeah, we're going to do a, a deeper dive into probably both of these things once we're back. We just kind of wanted to 
you know, get a feel for what people are thinking in the room. And like, yeah. like you said, these are kind of historic things. And it's the Assange thing is, is really interesting. Um, and what's going to happen to him over the next few days, um, what they're going to charge him with. Um, what he's actually culpable for, and the fact that he's a terrible house guest who doesn't clean up after his cat. <laughs> Which, as a cat owner, makes me very upset. Which is one of the <laughs> reasons. Take care of your cat. It's <laughs> one of the reasons why Ecuador kicked him out and allowed him to be arrested because he was such a he's just bad an tenant. Yeah. Well, the, 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 it was it was a, a messy cat. He wasn't cleaning him up after himself in the bathroom, and he had like repeat uninvited guests. He was yes. he's like the classic. How, how do you get away with that when you're living in an embassy? Oh, that's that's why you get arrested and and potentially extradited to the United States for for crimes. Yeah. Right. Did I hear that he has a ginormous beard? Yes, he looks I was like told um, by a student. He looks like the Ayatollah. Oh, yeah. Yes, <laughs> that's yes. a visual. I it's, it's not a good look for him. Yeah. <laughs> oh God. So, do you, what do you think is uh, what 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 are we going to what is the US going to charge him with what what's your take on this do you have a well, sense it's, what you're starting to hear is conspiracy to hack into US uh, secrets right i mean i think i think that's what they're going to go after him for they they won't go after him we were talking earlier about publishing right i mean that's that's a big right. deal to say that right. you were you were involved in the hacking is one thing versus I think it would be difficult to, to go after him for publishing. Yeah, you get into First Amendment stuff at that point. Yeah, right? I saw somebody who, who had said today, which this sort of I, I don't know that when I first read it, it surprised me a little. But as I thought about it, it didn't that, of course, the government has has prosecuted many people over the years for leaking information, but they've never prosecuted anyone for publishing leaked information. So um, it would be, a, you know, a, a uh, interesting step, and I it would be interesting to see you know, again what what Tom would say about that in terms of First Amendment protections and whether they would get away with that. I wonder how much if this is coming out of the Mueller investigation, if this is related mm -hmm. to recent Russia stuff, or if this is related to earlier that you know the the stuff that he was involved in with Chelsea Manning and other uh, prior long prior to this. I, I don't I don't have the sense of whether this is a you know years old indictment, and maybe the reporting has talked about this and I haven't seen it, or if this is a new thing. Well, and it puts the Trump administration in a bit of an awkward position. They asked uh, Trump today what he thought about all this, and he says, "I really, I don't know. I have really nothing to do with WikiLeaks." You know, which is when you think about the campaign, is how much he loved WikiLeaks. Like that's it's awkward for him. Pompeo has come out against WikiLeaks pretty hard, so there certainly are voices within the administration that do not like Assange or what they've done. But uh, yeah, it's going to be awkward. Oh. Mm -hmm. I from a, a prosecutorial standpoint, I think it's like you, you said. It's I think it's going to be extremely, extremely difficult. I think the the best precedent that you have uh, with that would be the release of the or the publishing of the Pentagon Papers uh, and the Nixon administration's attempts to stop that from occurring. Uh, Supreme Court sided with um, the New York Times and I think the Washington Post at the time uh, and allowed them to publish the information regardless of how it was obtained. Um, yeah, I don't know. I, I think they're going to pull out any dirty trick that they can to get this guy, and it'll be really interesting to see what happens. So right now, what was released is they're saying it's a single charge, conspiracy to commit computer intrusion, and it was filed in March of 2018. Mm -hmm. uh, it stems from what prosecutors say was his agreement to break a password to classified U.S. government a U.S. government computer. It only carries a penalty of up to five years in prison. I mean, so it's... Mm -hmm. it's Kind of minor. Less of a time than he was in that embassy. Right. <laughs> but they may bring more against him, right? I mean, they just may have one charge now. But... I mean, is it really hacking if the password is guessed to begin with? One, two, three, four. <laughs> one, two, oh, okay. They put a four in there. It used to just be one, two, three. 
<laughs> I, 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 my sense, and I will admit to the listeners that having had a day, I have seen very little about the news. But the little that I've seen and been listening, I think that I, I think Phil's point is well taken, which is that it feels to me like there's something else here that we just don't know about. And I don't know when that will come out or how public that will be or what we're allowed to know. But if this was filed back in March, but all of a sudden now, and that it's, and it's not big, right? I mean, what you said, it's not, it doesn't hold anything very large in terms of time. There has to be something else that is coming or that, that they know that we don't know mm-hmm. that's going to keep him in jail for a lot longer. Something mm-hmm. heavier. There's got to be. Or maybe you're just removing a threat. I mean, he has been a thorn that's in our true. side. So you're right. I think they're both could be true, right? There's going to be mm-hmm. more charges brought against him. But if you can get him out of that position of power. Him. Right. Yeah. Do we have, do we have, I mean, what you're saying sounds like he's been like doing more stuff in the embassy, right? Like that they're scared of what else he's, because was a student in my class, because this is where I learned the news today, say that there was something like emails happening between the Ecuadorian president and his wife that they were leaked and now they were worried that Assange had something to do with it. Hmm. This, I, I, I say, again, yeah, say to the listeners, this is speculation because I heard it from a student, but. The embassy cut off his internet access at one point, <laughs> yes. right? Yes. Oh, poor boy. Well, I mean, the organization didn't go away. I mean, there was, you know, there's, I I think it was on NPR. They were talking with the the current editor of WikiLeaks. Um, So I think the organization itself is still probably a thorn in their side. I'm assuming he has information on the structure and who's involved and what they could possibly have and and that. But that might be valuable, right, to be neutralized, to Bill's Mm -hmm. point, that they don't want him doing any more working on any more stuff. What was funny for me is that so after the Ecuadorian embassy started cutting his Internet and telling you to clean up after his cat, (laughs) he he uh, he took this. He he lost. He filed a complaint with the Inter-American Commission on Human Rights. Right. So, So they put down a few restrictions like clean up your cat, clean up after yourself, clean your bathroom. Stop, you know, stop screwing with the internet. Uh, and he files a claim that his human rights are being violated. I, I, I think his cat's rights are being violated. Right. <laughs> he's protecting him from prosecution. Yeah. Yes. And he's going to file a human rights complaint because they told him to pick up his underwear off the floor. <laughs> he is something, man. When we come back, you know, next time maybe we should. Be, it is an interesting question to think about the role of WikiLeaks. And even though Assange, I think, is, is a pretty terrible person, we've talked about that. Is there a, an important role for this organization to expose governments who never release documents? The U.S. government has gotten worse yes. and worse and worse over the years in terms of releasing information. And when that's the case, it, there is there is space and a, an important role for an organization like WikiLeaks to play. We could maybe dive deeper into that. Yeah, yep. I, I agree with that. I think I'm, I'm really torn about it because I agree with the principle that you're talking about. But WikiLeaks hasn't exactly been a neutral right. you know, arbiter of information in the world lately. And so... Um, yeah, I, I'm, I, I find myself really torn about it, trying to figure out how I feel about the, the well, WikiLe- WikiLeaks in general, but certainly Julian Assange. Yeah. yeah. Real quick, yeah. talk about Sudan, like sure. for a couple minutes. Yeah, absolutely. So this is, this is uh, if it wasn't for Assange, Sudan would be the lead story. I mean, Bashir has been there for 30 years. Um, the United States wanted him out, wanted to put pressure on him. Uh, ultimately, it, it came from the people. So there's been mm-hmm. ongoing protests for weeks and weeks and weeks pushing back against him. Ultimately, the military saw the writing on the wall that the public would had mobilized in a way that they had to respect their wishes, and, and they arrested him. I mean, I, I, I was stunned. Uh, this yeah. doesn't... It doesn't happen until it happens. Mm-hmm. Uh, I'm curious to see what happens, whether uh, Sudan prosecutes him or whether he's given up to the International Criminal Court. I mean, all those things are still up in the air. We don't know what's going to happen. Yeah. <laughs> um, the new- go ahead, Phil. Go ahead. 
Um, the, the new regime could could. Sorry. <laughs> <laughs> so much Midwestern politeness. Have, oh, Southern. I'm so I guess. sorry. sorry. Yeah. The point is very quick, which yeah. is that the the new the the new regime, the military regime, could earn a lot of uh, legitimacy and credibility by handing him over to the International Criminal Court. I think. I don't know that they'll actually do that, but it'll be interesting to see. Yeah, I, I I don't think that they will. Um, with this transition, they said that the uh, the government is going to be under military control for the next two years. And then they're going to call for new presidential elections. And the original um, protest group who started the protest against uh, Bashir uh, is not having this. So I would imagine there's probably going to be another flare up with the military and, and these. Um, they're not even insurgent groups. They're just protesters. Um, so it, this I, is as bad as Sudan has been over the past 30 years, it could potentially get a lot worse in the yeah, very near yeah. future, which is disconcerting. Especially since the military is the one who has been uh, sort of on the side of protesters. So now if the protesters are protesting against the military and they're not on, the, it could get ugly yeah. um, quick. Hopefully that doesn't happen. Well, and the reality is that it's not just the president who has dirty hands. I mean, the military, those around him have dirty hands. And so if you turn him over to the ICC, there's going to be a real investigation and then calls for others. Whereas if the military just puts him on trial, show trial, kills him, puts him in jail, whatever it is, they can say we're moving on. Right. Uh, I, I think you're right to say that this we shouldn't assume this means a quick hop to democracy. Sure. Uh, more often than not, when the military steps in, they, they like that power. They mm -hmm. don't give it up. It's so. pretty fun. Yeah. Mm -hmm. <laughs> Um, Agreed. Yeah. <laughs> I, I, I walked in here and they said, did you hear it up in Sudan? I said, no. So, again, it's a day. So I'm not even going to pretend. Well, before any of that happened, we were going to talk about the Democratic primary and the potential candidates. Um, that's why we have you here, Suzanne. Yeah. So, oh, thank you. <laughs> um, not to talk about Sudan. <laughs> um yeah, I just want to sure. dive in. Yeah, we're going to break this up where we're going to have our opening conversation, kind of talking more generally about the primary. And then for speed round, we're going to walk through five different candidates. So we're, you're going to get a lot of the a lot of candidates, a lot of primary. Um, so we're roughly three months into the presidential primary, and it's shaping up to be one of the most wide open and fascinating in a generation. By my count, there are at least 18 candidates who are officially running with a couple others, most notably Joe Biden, likely to announce soon. Unlike other years, it appears that many of these candidates have serious staying power with large crowds and donations fueling their campaigns. Uh, with so many engaging questions. For instance, how far left will the candidates drift? Mm -hmm. Will the dramatic generational differences of the candidates play a role? What story does the money tell us? Uh, what are we seeing in terms of the media coverage? Uh, you know, can anybody catch Joe Biden and Bernie Sanders? I think so. Yep. Uh, well, well, there are many opening questions. We're also we've also seen some clarity. That's why we're so lucky to be joined by our expert in all things campaigns and elections, Dr. Suzanne Chad. Suzanne, what's your, your opening impressions of the early stages of this historic primary campaign? Well, I like that you say the historic primary campaign because yes. there's so many reasons why might we one might say it's historic. So it's, one is the size. And so we thought 17 in the Republican primary of 16 was a lot. And now we're going to be potentially over 20 by the time we are moving through wow. the invisible primary. So that, the size, is historic, right? And I think there's a lot of reasons why right now we see the size. So one is this potential potential perception, or I should say perception, that the current president is beatable, mm -hmm. right? So sitting president, typically we're not gonna see this much traction or action in an opposing primary because presidents don't lose normally when they run. So there's something about the idea that he's beatable. I think that's part. The other part of it is because the Democrats, 
not all, but a lot, at least the Democratic base is so unhappy with the current president that candidates feel like they can tap into that discontent, similarly to how Trump tapped into the discontent, to be able to win the primary, even if they don't necessarily get to you know, become president in the beginning of 2021. So I think those two things may be working together, but not necessarily. Um, so that's the size, I think, is one of the historic things. But the diversity of the candidates, so I know we're going to get into this when we talk about some of the specific candidates, but the first ones to announce were almost exclusively people of color or women or women of color. Mm-hmm. So that, I think, is a signal of where the candidates think the party is, right? Where the voters are, I should be more specific. Whether the party is there, I don't know yet. And so again, this disconnect we saw in 2016 with the Republican primary where Trump knew where the voters were. The party did not. So is, are these candidates, do they know where the voters are in a way that the party does not? I think it's way too early to know this because the invisible primaries were just in it and there's so many of them. Um, but I think that looking at how 2016 went for the Republicans, we have some interesting parallels now. And that to me also makes it historic because is it historic or is this the trend? And I don't know that yet. Mm-hmm. So that, that those are my initial thoughts. Do you think, um, I'm just going to jump in and ask a question based off that. Is it reflective of divisions within the party? So I, it seems like you've got, you know, this new sort of super progressive wing. You've got the more moderate wing. You've right. got generational. Yes. Is it, just, is it just that this would have happened at any other time? Or is the, the sheer number of people also getting at the fact that the the democratic party is i don't know if it's fractured but it's, it's so kind diverse. Of spread out at yes. this point yeah no i think you're absolutely right i think that that's a huge part of it and we think about sort of look at who might vote in the primary there's sort of I, I don't think i would be the only one to argue this like five main categories based on who's voted always for democratic primaries and some of the newer voters that have we've seen in the past couple of cycles so you've got the like party loyalists right so this is where like the joe biden supporters would fall right like long-term democratic party loyalists then you have um like the left the more progressive extreme so like the elizabeth warren bernie sanders then you have the millennials right so they love beto right they love a good hipster kind of guy um and then you have the core black voters that have always been on the sides of the democratic party and have sort of ebbed and flowed in how much they turn out and then you have the hispanic voters and so that's five not always disparate groups, but can be depending on the type of candidate that can speak to them. And so these are the five groups that we think comprise the Democratic primary voting field. That speaks to the diversity of the candidates running, but then who can spread across to all five of those groups? As you were talking, I was thinking about the sheer number of that and how it's going to divide among the voters. Does that advantage candidates like Bernie and Biden? Or does it give an advantage to some young upstart who's jumping in the campaign? I mean, what does the sheer number and that diversity do to the overall likelihood of somebody winning? Well, so it's interesting because we don't know how many of them will be left when the primary voting begins, Mm -hmm. right? So we know the primary dates are scheduled. But once votes are cast, we get a clearer sense of who has, as you said, the staying power. So if you look at those five groups just on face value, Kamala Harris has the best shot. But there's so many other things, socioculturally, institutionally, psychologically, that are stacked against a woman of color winning that let's just say she can't, right? So then who kind of comes up? Then you see like maybe somebody like Beto because he hits some of those boxes in ways that like Biden, he's great with the left or with the, with the party loyalists, right? But that's becoming a smaller and smaller portion of the primary electorate. So. 
I yeah. have more questions. <laughs> <laughs> Go ahead. Well, I, I was thinking and this about, is why you have me. Well, I was thinking about b- both the number of candidates and then the way in which money is playing a role and yes. the generational divide, right? Yes. So thinking about the way in which there's this generational divide between candidates like a Bernie and Biden yep. and the younger candidates. Yep. And the younger candidates are raising money in very, very different ways. Mm-hmm. So somebody like Biden who comes in who isn't used to this dynamic, is that is that going to be a problem for him? I mean, it sounds like super PACs are not as important mm-hmm. as they once were. No, because... Well, well, there's a couple reasons why. One is that now we see the dark money becoming such a bigger force in the American political elections that that in and of itself has made super PACs less important. Mm-hmm. So there's sort of the institutional reason. But then it's also candidates like Elizabeth Warren and others that are saying, we are not taking any of that money. That's a good a good line to use because you can take it from small donations and you can get dark money even if you don't want to tell people that you're doing that. So someone like Biden who hasn't run a campaign in the modern era ever because he didn't run the Obama campaign in 08, I think that it will be a lot harder for him. It's a it's a higher, steeper learning curve. But Bernie Sanders still does not, he's not doing as well, but he's still doing well with the younger millennial voters and with those small online donations. Mm-hmm. Um, but so are now some of the other candidates are too. Buttigieg is, who hasn't announced yet. Kamala Harris is as well. So... The advantage that Bernie had in 2016, I don't think that that exists anymore. But it disadvantages Biden in the way that you described. Sure. Mm-hmm. Mm. Yep. Nick? <laughs> yes. <laughs> that was like when I said pass. Yes. Okay. <laughs> Can pass. we do that? Can we pass? <laughs> I, I have more, but I don't want to. No, 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 please. No, I, I need to formulate a thought. Okay. <laughs> the other thing I was thinking about was, so right now it does feel like Bernie and Biden are the big names that everybody's yeah. talking about. And then there's a, so maybe there's this first tier and maybe Kamal Harris jumps into that. Yeah. But, but the two old white guys are, are clearly the front runners. Yeah. Well, you know, how, how important is that right now? Is, is that something that with the sheer numbers, yeah. it, we expect that to, to change over time or? So it is important because it potentially signals electability, mm-hmm. right? So we know political science has been very clear in trying to understand and explain the way that, dem- that, presidential primaries work. And so um, John Sides and Lynn Babrick, you know, they wrote The Gamble about 2012. Michael Tesler adds in and they write the book Identity Crisis about 2016. And they have talked about sort of this pattern of media coverage and poll numbers in primaries. And so there's the discovery stage where you find the candidate announces, the media finds the candidate, you find the candidate, and then the media gives the candidate more and more attention. And then the scrutiny comes and then the poll numbers decline. So this is what we've seen almost always across all candidates. So <laughs> what is interesting about watching this happen now is that for candidates who are front runners, so you look at like Biden and Sanders, and Biden hasn't even announced yet, right? The more media coverage they get, but we don't have to discover them. We already know who they are. So in this case, it doesn't really seem like the discovery, scrutiny, and decline is going to affect them. But it does still signal electability to the primary voters, right? If the media is covering them and if they're being called the front runners, even on this podcast, it's going to signal something when the voting actually happens, that they're the ones that are most likely not only win the primary, but potentially beat President Trump. That could give a disadvantage to other candidates who are not in the discussion. And Biden hasn't even announced yet. And I know you love your boy Buttigieg, but yeah, he yeah. hasn't announced yet <laughs> no. either. And we are dedicating a speed round to him. He's, so He's been busy. I mean, busy running for president without running for president. Although when this airs, he might he might announce. True. It sounds like, it's, it's like this the weekend 14th. he might do so. Yeah, he's yeah. got this thing on the 14th. We just heard so. that he's announced. <laughs> 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 Breaking news. <laughs> yeah, so that's that's the answer to the yeah. question. Yeah. Um, I, go ahead, Phil. I just the comment that I, I I'm talking about this a little bit. The early uh, prominence. I saw somebody. I forget who it was. Somebody recently that I saw that was 
drawing that was showing correlations essentially between um, <clears throat> the the essentially where voters where primary voters fall on the sort of political spectrum and who their preference of candidate was yeah. and there's at this point um zero linkage right? oh right <laughs> that that essentially it is all name recognition at this point so so regardless you know people bernie has people all over the 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 left spectrum voting for him and you know some a candidate that's more moderate also has people all over the, it's it's just name recognition at this point yeah mm-hmm. especially in the vis, in in the invisible primary with so you, many so candidates you, You've mentioned that a couple of times. Oh, we, sure. You talk about what that what you mean by that. Yeah. So the the way we talk about in political science is it's, it's the time when between when a candidate announces or when candidates announce and when the first votes are cast. So the critical part about the invisible primary is this is where all the money is is raised and this is where all the immediate where all the media attention happens. And since can, candidates announce so far in advance now, so much further in advance than they used to, the length of the primary. Um, the length of the invisible primary, since it's now longer, then there's more money that can be raised and more media attention, which is good for the candidates. But then we also get fatigue as voters because we, you know, people are announcing two years in advance. And by the time the first votes are cast, we would expect that name recognition of those candidates would increase. But that also presumes that we're paying attention. And so if we're turned off by a long invisible primary, we may pay less attention. And so that could affect then when votes are cast, who kind of rises to the top. Mm-hmm. So, yeah. it, it's a unique pressure for the media when you've got this many candidates. Mm-hmm. Like, how do you cover everybody? There's, there's you no can't. way you can't, no. right? No. And, and we see there's a handful of candidates that get a lot of attention, yeah. and it's maybe not always fair how that it's works. Not. I mean, Beto gets tons and tons of attention. Maybe he doesn't deserve all of that. Mm-hmm. There's probably some gender dynamics to we that, know right? There are. Um, yes. Who's getting coverage? Yeah, women get way more attention. Than <laughs> 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 That's a joke. I know. No, I know it was. It is interesting, though. Like, I, I, you know, we can talk about, um, not Biden. Um, the other white guy, Sanders. The, yeah. Wow, it's hard to tell them apart. Um, Sanders and and Clinton and this kind of underlying thing of having a, an anointed candidate once you get to a certain point. Yes. And you've already seen CNN uh, schedule, I think it's five individual town halls. And they started who, already. Yeah. Yeah. Who they perceive is or supposed to be the front runners, yeah. which realistically just correlates to who is going to get the best ratings, I would imagine, more mm-hmm. than anything. And reinforces the narrative that's already out there. Absolutely. Right. Um, I guess my question is, just kind of an overall perspective, we would some of us would expect and a lot of us would hope at this point that the trend that we saw in 2016 and the electoral landscape that that kind of came out of it mm-hmm. we would want it to kind of normalize a little bit mm-hmm. um normalize in terms of going backwards not that it is normal to run a campaign like it was in 2016 that is correct okay, gotcha. yeah <laughs> um <laughs> I, I think that there's still a, a reckoning to be had with, you know, the Trump effect and, and what he's done yes. to the political system. Yes. With regardless of w- what candidate you're talking about, there's 18 different candidates at this point, potentially more. Um, do you see any of them, regardless of what their platform is, mm-hmm. from an, uh, an electability, a likability, mm-hmm. a, a charisma standpoint, mm-hmm. do you see any of them being able to kind of... Uh, dance around and entangle with Trump on a, mm. a on a, a, a level that is it, it's hmm. are you talking uh, let me see are you talking about like let's put them on a debate stage with one another yes who can go toe to toe Trump yeah. style right 
quote That's Trump a, style. Yes, yes. Okay, you said gotcha. that much better than no, I no, just. I just was kind of. I just came from the presidency class yeah. where we were talking about these things, mm-hmm. so it's you know that's where my mind is. Um, can I before you answer? Yeah. I want to throw one more part onto that question. Is that a bad idea to try to go head to head Trump style with Trump? Yeah. So I think I, I would agree more with what Phil is saying because we saw what Hillary Clinton tried to do and did well was like come with the facts, come with the information. This is also what women candidates do. They have to be overly prepared to be taken somewhat seriously and he came in like the bully and then everyone thought he won the debates right so whether you come in and go toe-to-toe with him like Marco Rubio and Ted Cruz tried to do and all the media coverage was how Trump trounced them or you come in with all the facts you come in over prepared it's going to be spun that they looked weak compared to this strong you know presidential because is that what presidential looks like now person so I don't know whether there is the right strategy or who who could be Trump-like because, it, like Phil said, I don't know if that's a good idea. Sure. Um, but here's what I would say is that, and this is, this is good and bad, I think, in the way that I'm about to say it, is that probably the person best equipped to do that with, with the fire that Trump brings is Kamala Harris, mm-hmm. who's the one person who can't do that because she can't be the, quote, angry black woman. Mm-hmm. So even, so if she gets to that stage with, with Trump, she has to be, in some ways, even more passive than Hillary Clinton was, which doesn't do her any good in a debate format. But if she comes out with the fire we see from her, which is a good thing for a candidate to have, but not for a woman of color to have in that position. Yeah, I'm thinking about, like, Joe Biden wouldn't play the Trump game, but he might be good at defusing that, right? He might oh, be one of the only candidates. Joe, well, yeah. you know, where Joe can kind of break it down and say, hey, look what we're seeing here, right? I mean, he's, he may be the only candidate that has the gravitas to do that, Mm -hmm. you know, in terms of going head to head with Trump. I don't, I still don't, I'm not sure that's the right choice for the party. Yes. Uh, But he, I think, could be successful in a way that I don't think Bernie would be against Trump. Mm -hmm. Trump's, I mean, Trump's good at that. Mm -hmm. Uh, And if if the candidate plays Trump's game, Mm -hmm. I think they're, I don't know if they're going to lose, but it's not a good idea. Yeah. Mm -hmm. You know, like you said, it's, it probably doesn't make sense to play his game, but there, someone has to have learned or evolved within this system over the past couple of years Mm -hmm. to find that middle ground, something that can diffuse the situation, but also comes off as extremely intelligent and forthright and and capable in their, not only in um, their um, um, self-worth, I guess, for lack of a better term, and their understanding of their their individual platform and their party's platform sure. and, the and how, to, how that appeals to yeah, the wider electorate, I yeah. guess. What, what's interesting, what, the one thing that will be very different, in, well, it should be very different, although we'll see how it goes in the, the general election debates in 2020, is now Trump is running on a, an actual record as opposed to, so this is where voters can be retrospective and go back and look at what he has done as opposed to prospective. So what might he do and what he's promising? Um, and so we would think that there may be, there we would expect there to be a different dynamic because there's a record for him to run on and also a record for the Democratic candidate to attack. But what we know, what we've all, I guess we've known all along, but it's getting worse is this, what we call the affective polarization. So this sort of feeling that anything that's delivered by the other party is either false or wrong or scary or whatever. And what the data also show us is that, especially under the Obama administration, that our, our perceptions of the economy, both at the like larger macro level and then our own our own economic standing, was totally uh, seen through the, the, the filter of partisanship. So even 
objective economic indicators are now seen as through partisan lens that even if the Democratic candidate says, hey, the economy is supposed to slow significantly in 2020 because of all the things you've done, he can say the opposite and each party will believe what their candidate says. Mm-hmm. Truth so isn't truth anymore. Truth is yeah. not true. Rudy's not wrong. Mm. Truth is not true. I miss truth. So, <laughs> I miss <laughs> truth. Oh my God, that's my new hashtag. <laughs> I sort of want to play some hypotheticals now. So um, I'm looking at predict it. They give Bernie Sanders, so his shares of Bernie Sanders are at 21 cents. So they give him a 21% chance, essentially, of, of winning the nomination. Joe Biden, 19%, 19 cents. So they're the top two, although there is someone else tied with Joe Biden. Have you looked today? Do you know who the third highest? I kind of want to guess, but I have, I have to admit, yeah. I have, is it Buttigieg? It is Buttigieg, yeah. yeah. So, so you got 21 cents for Bernie Sanders. So basically, 21% chance that Bernie wins it, 19% chance that Joe Biden wins it. So I have multiple questions here. In a primary in which it's just Bernie and Biden, oh. who do you think wins? Sorry. <laughs> I, you don't have to like it, Suzanne. Who wins in that battle? And then who of those two people do you think has a better chance of, of beating Trump? And then here's my third part of the question. Do you think either of those are overrated or underrated? Do you think they have a better chance or a worse mm. chance of winning the primary than 20%? Oh, my gosh. There's so many things there. So It's, it's for everybody, whoever wants to yeah. come in and talk about it. Oh, man. So everyone's, like, looking at me like... I'm thinking, <laughs> no, no, I'm thinking about the, like, it's still, it's, it's, it's... You're all you're still looking at so Bernie. I, the one I'm looking at right now says Bernie twenty two cents or twenty two percent, Biden twenty, Buttigieg eighteen or nineteen. Mm-hmm. They're all like right there. Mm-hmm. Um, so who is so the first question, Phil, was who is who's overvalued? Who's, who's was the first question? Who's be, who would be more likely to beat Trump? Was your first, first question? question Sanders and Sanders and and Biden. Who do you think comes oh, out wins. as the Democratic nominee in that in that case? Well, who's given more that. To win? I guess. Yeah. So given, I mean, again, I keep saying this over and over. I say this to Bill also because we're talking about Buttigieg today. Given that Biden hasn't announced yet, let's presume he does, of course, to get to your hypothetical scenario. Unfortunately, my answer is going to be it depends. And I hate when I give this answer, but it's the best social science answer. Because, right, (laughs) right. So many of this depends on, if we think about those five pockets of Democratic primary voters, it's always about who comes out. Mm -hmm. Right. And so really you've got, Joe Biden's advantage is with party loyalists, party loyalists, right? The older generation, the Clinton, the Bill Clinton Democrats who stayed, right? And then Sanders's um, sort of stronghold is both sort of sort of in the millennials and then also right in the the leftists. My bet then, if I'm looking just at that, is that Joe Biden wins the primary, mm-hmm. based on mobilization patterns across primaries, Democratic primaries across time. So that's my, that's the first answer. I guess I'll stop there and see what y'all think about. My I would answer. think I, I think in a I think that's that would be my guess as well. If it's just the two of them, when you add in the other yes. sixteen to seventeen, oh, then it, it feels to me like Bernie might have a mm-hmm. chance, a better chance. If, if we're talking about the question of who's overrated at, at this point, now we're going to talk about Buttigieg, and I, I'm very excited about him, yeah. and I'm excited about the the jump that he's making. But he, him being third now feels like that's a and bit he hasn't overly announced overvalued. Yes. Yeah, right. Yeah. That, that's now maybe that's a sign of things to come. But this also could be a flash in the pan. It could be the. You I know, think he's yeah. gotten a lot of good press coverage over the past 
couple weeks. Yes. If, yeah. yeah, if that. Um, he hasn't really done much of anything. He's had some good zingers on Twitter. That's that's about it. I, boxes. Yeah. You guys are not following directions. We're not talking I know. about okay. booty. So we're going to yeah. go back. Okay, let's go back. So now question. No, but no, but Bill, Bill answered the question about overvalued and undervalued. Yeah. Yeah. So he did sort of follow directions yeah. like a good student. That's so right. Buttigieg yeah. is overvalued. I agree. Um, now, I think the other question was your other question, Phil, who beats Trump? Yeah. Of those two? Of just of the two white dudes, if you had to pick strategically, yeah, you you're just wanting the Democrat to win, yeah, Um, and you have to pick Biden or 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 Sanders. Who who do you think? Who do you pick? Oh my gosh! If you could see my podcast Mm. listeners, (laughs) see my my physical, uh, this is like Sophie's choice. Um, Oh my gosh! Who do I think beats Trump better? So okay, probably Biden. Yeah. Probably Biden. What do you think, Phil? I'm (laughs) wrong. You're fired. (laughs) I'm never coming back again. I don't. I don't have like a super strong uh, sense. So I think that. um, I think if I were, if I had to bet, if there were a predicted market only on those two, who's going to win? I'm. I think I might bet on Bernie. Mm -hmm. Um, Why? Just because of the. I mean, Biden certainly has name recognition, but Bernie does as well. Coming out of the 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 last election, I. I, I tend to think that, I don't know, my, my instinct is to say if, if it's at 20% chance, I think that's a little high for Joe Biden. And mm-hmm. I think that's about right or for Bernie Sanders. Um, I tend to think that he has a ba- maybe a better chance of coming out of the primary. And I, now I'm not an expert and you are, so, uh, but I tend to, I don't know, I, I sort of wonder about whether Bernie... So the, here's the thing that I keep thinking about. You've mentioned these five sort of groups of primary voters, mm-hmm. but what's not mentioned in that, and, and because they're not primary voters, are the <laughs> you know the sort of swing voter, the blue collar, white, the peripheral the, voters, yeah, the the, the Obama Trump voters, right? Oh yeah. And I I sort of I don't I don't I don't know, but I I feel like Bernie might have a better chance with that group than See, with Biden. I but think I don't the know. opposite. I, I, I yeah I do I think so what we what we know about those this is such a great point you bring up but we know about those Obama Trump voters is they were very economically liberal but um, and that drove them more than the social conservatism and but not socialist economically liberal mm-hmm. which is where I think Biden has a huge advantage here especially because if these were Obama <coughs> voters he can run on look at the stuff we did when I was vice president mm-hmm. now that presumes that this now activated white identity and white racial resentment for those voters who did flip from Obama to Trump would somehow flip back because it's about economic liberalism above all else and I don't know that that presumption should be made but I think just on face value, I think that Biden would have a better shot with those voters so, because Bernie is like socialist, give all the black people all the stuff. I don't, I mean, I don't think <laughs> that may that, not sell. No, right. Yeah, it's not yeah. going to sell to Obama Trump voters. Sure. That raises another question for me, though, as well, which is that for those, you know, the the swing voters or whatever is. So you, you present Biden's association with Obama as a as a benefit. I wonder if that is. Is it possible that that is a detriment for him, that Bernie is sort of free of that? So, you know, we have this incredible partisanship and the, you know, the racial element of politics that's become so prominent. I wonder if Biden's affiliation, because that's how most Americans know him, right, right. is is an affiliation with Barack Obama. I wonder that will certainly help him with some segments of society, but it'll hurt him with other segments. It would. Yeah, Mm -hmm. it would. And I think that's the thing. That is exactly what we don't know, is that the pocket of Trump-Obama voters who 
like would like the economic liberalism that Biden presents, and then they can go back to voting Democratic like they had for decades, whether that pocket's bigger than the ones where the white identity and the white racial resentment is the thing. And so they cannot vote for anyone who was associated with the black president. That's really interesting because I'm thinking about, you're talking about the, the Obama-Trump voters, whether Biden could pull some of them back again, mm-hmm. right? And I, I'm not so certain. Yeah. Uh, it's, mm-hmm. yeah. Because Trump has mobilized that group yes. in a way where it's now identity and maybe not so much economic interest, but mm-hmm. it's it's hard to say. But that's really it's fascinating to think about. Mm-hmm. But that group is very malleable. They were malleable enough right. to be activated by Trump. Mm-hmm. But of course, the activation was not was the combination of um, sort of the economic and the cultural threat. Right. It was that perfect combination of those. Right. And so um, what what Biden would potentially be able to provide at least was to was to like let go of some of that economic threat, assuage some of that. But the, as you say, the cultural threat, cultural threat is still very present. And mm-hmm. we don't know what's going to happen in the economy. I mean, we're still mm-hmm. years out right before that actual voting date. So right. the economy could be in a really great shape, not, which would help, help Trump. Well, no, the pro- not if you live in New Hampshire, you're, oh. way less than a year out at that point. <laughs> well, That's the, true. the projections, at least from what I've seen, is that the economy in 2020 is supposed to slow significantly. Yeah. Interest rates are supposed to go up and home ownership is supposed to decrease. And so right into an election year. Sure. And the president is running on his record. How do you say that was Obama's fault? This is interesting. He will, but the deep state. You could right, right, right. You could you could have an economy for the primary, like you said, Phil. You know, New Hampshire's just right around the corner. But then, so elections much further off. You elect that Democratic primary candidate based on the economy during the primary, but things could shift by the time we get to the general election, and maybe Mm -hmm. the candidate that you've pushed forward isn't as good. Oh. This is good. Yeah. That's good should, stuff. We, should we talk some beer and yes. then dive in? Absolutely. Why? Why? No. No, no, we're good. We got, we got <laughs> more. We got more I time. Know, I know, I know. Phil, is that a double IPA I see it you is sampling? A double IPA. Wow. Yeah. We're so proud. So, we, we've, I've talked off air. <laughs> I've probably talked on air about this as well. The last time I had a double IPA was like a year and a half ago when I had shingles and I drank it while on shingles medicine. And that my PSA to listeners is don't do that. (laughs) So I've been a little bit afraid of double IPA since. But Tom talked me into trying one. So I have uh, Daikaiju, which is from Banded Brewing. Brewing, And I I should have looked beforehand. Daikaiju? Out of Maine. Yeah, Banded Brewing out of Maine. The name of their beer is Daikaiju. Um, D-A-I-K-I-K-A-I-J-U. I don't, if I spoke, uh, that seems, you, you speak, well, what is that? Kaiju Japanese? is monster. Oh, and there's a picture of a monster. Well, there you go. There you go. Good job, Nick. See? Yeah. <laughs> the more, again, the more you know. Yes, apparently. That's right. Yeah. Um, some monster movies. This, you know, Tom talked on the last one about how, you know, double IPAs are, uh, sort of backing off of the the kind of crazy in your face hoppiness, and this this is like that. Like I, if you if you gave this to me, I wouldn't go, oh, that's a double IPA. It just it has the, you know, it's an intense IPA. It's it's really good. Um, I don't love it as much as I loved the beer that I had last night slash last week's episode. <laughs> this week, this week. <laughs> but it's it's very good. I would recommend. You know, it, it's it makes me think twice about uh, double IPAs and how I feel about them. Mm-hmm. Nick, what are we having? We are having a uh, a daytime from uh, Lagunitas, which uh, is an IPA. Um, yeah, like, we were we were talking about this before we started recording. I feel like a lot of the the bigger original craft breweries um, who have gotten bought by the the, the bigger uh, beer providers, a lot of their stuff is it seems to be very similar. Um, and I like Lagunitas; like there are very few of their beers that I don't like. 
this one is is just kind of a a very light IPA. Um, it's 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 physically light. It's pretty carbonated. Um, there's yeah, I, I and there's not a lot of hoppiness to it. There's no like sweet notes. There's nothing that really distinguishes it from anything. It's just a very standard IPA, I guess. Yeah. Suzanne, what'd you think? Well, I was a little salty at first because the <laughs> gentlemen know that I don't care for IPAs because they a, make a me light, feel yucky. A light IPA. Yes, uh, but so I was I was excited when I saw it, and then he told me an IPA, and I was like, meh. But um, I actually really really like it. Now, ask me in an hour after mm-hmm. I've drank one. But I, it's <laughs> it is it's really light and it's really smooth, um, and it doesn't have like a bitter bite aftertaste, which some of the IPAs I think do. Mm-hmm. So I actually really like this. I, I I'm do not too. mad at you now. Yeah, and the reason I do is that we've had a lot of IPAs over the years, and they get so intense, right? It's like they're just hitting you with the hops and the the, the after after taste. Yes, yes, yes. Uh, and this it feels like the lagers and some of these light IPAs. There's there's I like them. I enjoy them. I feel like there's something to it. Um, you're right. It doesn't have the citrusy, and it doesn't have maybe the piney that some of the other ones do. But I, I like this, and it's way more drinkable. Like some yes. of the I. Some it's, of those yeah. IPAs are double IPAs. You have one, you're like, okay, that's it. Um, this, is, this is this is uh, a very sit in the backyard and have it's a good after you mow the grass. Two hundred percent. We should start counting how many times one of you. Is that always Phil's line or one always of you? Always. Yeah. Okay. We should that's do that. some Drinkable analysis. for Drinkable. Nick. Yep. And, I'm yeah. trying to get away from that. <laughs> yeah. Problematic. We Problematic. That, yeah. yeah, that's kind of climbing the charts. Yeah. Um, Speed round. Yeah. Before that. Oh, yeah, uh, right. yeah, yeah. If you guys uh, want to check out the beers that we have in the podcast, uh, download Untapped on iOS or Android. Just look for Barstool Politics on there. Um, we throw all of our beer reviews up on there. Good. Now, speed round. All right. We're going to talk about. Five of the anointed candidates. Exactly. Are we not? Yeah. So as we mentioned, we're going to break anointed down. by whom? <laughs> right. Me. We just said we're anointing them. Actually, actually, I will say. I, I worked... said we're anointed. He said we are anointed. <laughs> what I did is I was looking at predicted, and I used the their top candidates yeah. other than Biden and Bernie, which we've talked about, uh, and then added a couple more that I think are interesting. So, mm-hmm. so starting with one that I am totally fascinated with right now and is generating some national attention, that's Pete Buttigieg, or Mayor Pete. And if you want to learn to say his name, it's Buddha Judge. Buddha Judge. And then say it fast. Buddha Judge. It's, it's, I, I, Once it's you told me that, it changed my world. It really does. Yeah. <laughs> so he's the mayor of South Bend, um, and he's young. At 37 years old, Buddha Judge is only a few years older than the age requirement to be commander-in-chief, which is, of course, 35. He is a former Rhodes Scholar and a veteran of the war in Afghanistan and would be the first openly gay nominee from a major party. I'll be honest, I didn't know much about Buttigieg until a few weeks back when he started doing his interviews, and he comes across as incredibly thoughtful, bright, and someone who's looking to avoid the ugliness of the culture wars. Suzanne, is it possible that we elect a gay veteran who's not even 40? <laughs> the fact that you're laughing as you deliver it yes. is sort of funny. But. So, um, yes and no, because, of course, that has to be the answer, right? So, um <laughs> the, then Phil's going to go like he did last time I said it depends right <laughs> so I guess yes it is possible for various reasons right one is that if we again think back to those sort of five categories of democratic primary voters of course with millennials his Instagram account alone right is enough to get him on uh, get millennials on board Ugh. and even to, <laughs> even just the students that I've talked to as as this, the term has begun are excited to learn more about him and particularly the democratic students are excited about him because i think they feel there's a candidate that they can connect to <clears throat> in terms of age um there's really nothing to lead, lead us to believe that party loyalists wouldn't vote for him if he were the nominee so there's nothing that would like turn people off to him now the issue is that he's not particularly progressive in terms of his leftist mm-hmm. quote leftist ideas 
And so the Bernie Sanders, the, the young millennial voters who like Bernie Sanders may have a harder time kind of jumping onto the Buttigieg bandwagon for that reason. Um, the, the thing that is in his, that, so that's, those are things in his, in his favor and I guess not also, what's potentially also in his favor is his sexuality. Because if you look at, I was just actually looking at some interesting statistics. Gallup has this question from 2015. So I'll just read the question. The share of people in a 2015 survey, well, this is how it's described, excuse me. Share of people in a 2015 survey who would not, who would not vote for a generally well-qualified person nominated from their own party if they had each of the following characteristics, okay? So socialist, atheist, Muslim, evangelical Christ, Christian, and then gay and lesbian, right? And so for Democrats, only 14% of people said they would not vote for a gay or lesbian. But um, 38% said they wouldn't vote for a socialist. Now, this was 2015, right? So, of mm -hmm. course, it's a little bit different. Now, here's the thing. 38% of Republicans would not vote for a gay or lesbian. Overall, that's 24%. We have no idea necessarily what the general election population – I mean, we have some guess based on year by year who votes in a general election. So for Democrats, I don't think his sexuality is going to be a problem. But, but the general election. But the general election, it could mm. potentially be a problem. Right. Yeah. I, I'm, I'm my only counter to that is if if you don't if you like you refuse to vote for someone because they're gay, you're mm -hmm. probably not voting Democrat anyway. Right? I mean, like, you're not wrong. Mm -hmm. You yeah, are not wrong. You are not wrong. Yeah. But if you do have again, going back to this question or the, the conversation before economically liberal, mm -hmm. socially conservative, you know, voters who maybe voted for Obama, maybe, you know, voted for Trump or some or there's somewhere, you know, danced between the parties. This could be one of the things that would make, that would have them vote either to reelect Trump, mm -hmm. vote for him again, or vote for him the first time. Mm -hmm. But we don't know what that pocket looks like, right? Sure. So that that's part of it. The other thing, unfortunately, that goes against him is um, that he's a mayor, right? And so mayors typically don't do very well in these kind of contests. But although this is a unique time, right? It You're is. running against somebody with no real political experience before Trump, and mm -hmm. I think he's even said that that normally yes. this I wouldn't dive in, but given the context. I have a chance. Mm -hmm. I will say one of the things that I, why I've been drawn to him is when you hear him in an interview, it's not sound bites. I mean, he really is thoughtful. And yes. I don't know. And he's, he's incredibly smart. Yes. He speaks multiple different languages. Yes. I don't know if that plays well on the campaign when right. we have a more anti-elitist perspective going on. But I found myself, there were a couple positions that he had taken. I thought, uh, that seems a little, I'm not sold on that. And then I heard him talk about it. And I thought, he's clearly thought about these issues. Yes. Right. Uh, and the more press he gets, to Nick's point earlier, I, I think he's going to continue to get more support. Yeah, I, I mean, like you said, it's it's not sound bites. What he says, it's it's very well thought out. It's very succinct. Um, he's, you know, he he you can you can hear like the 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 military experience yeah. in his voice, and he just seems like a, a genuinely normal, decent person. That's important, right? Um, yeah. To your point, he speaks several languages. Uh, I heard a story that he was listening to the South Bend police scanner or something, and he heard a call go out for an interpreter at a hospital or something for a specific language that he had picked up while he was in Afghanistan. He drove to the hospital, did you know the interpretation, and the doctor said, "Yeah, well, thanks for doing that. You know, you're not the normal interpreter guy. You know, <laughs> you know, what, what's your name? Like, what do I call you? Where do you come from? Oh, I'm just Mayor Pete. You know." <laughs> and then he I'm just left. Sure he's like, he's, he's, he's the lame Batman. It's fantastic. <laughs> I heard a, a similar, very similar story about Trump. I think. <laughs> <laughs> if I would have been drinking, uh, it would have been a spit take for sure. He just seems like a really unique yeah. kind of even keel candidate, and I would love for 
for more of that to kind of come to the forefront. Right. So I'm very interested. If it wasn't for his sexual orientation, I think he he has really, really broad appeal, right? Mm-hmm. I mean, a, a veteran. To me, this seems kind of exciting where you have, you're both a veteran. Yes. And you're gay. Now, it's also a critique where he's getting hit from the left to say, as Suzanne said, he's not liberal enough. He's getting hit from the right as well. So it's That's perfect. Yeah. <laughs> it, it, it may be evidence of a good candidate. Yeah. Mm-hmm. I think that could work to his advantage. Like, so mm-hmm. he's at, at 19 cents or whatever on predicted. He's overrated, right? Yeah, um, for sure. But, but I think that a lot of the stuff we're talking about could, re- again, combined with the the moment we're in, could really work to his advantage. I, I, I like. I'm surprised at, despite his, I, I think his moderate stance could work for him. Um, I, I've there have been a number of people I've talked to who are more left than him. Um, people I work with and you know people I friends that I have but who are thrilled about him because of the stuff that we mentioned that he's smart and composed and decent and, and decent even that's moderate, a thing that right? we have to actually say now <laughs> right but that in, in some ways that makes him a really you know we talked about like what how do you counteract Trump mm-hmm. in yeah. some ways that yep. is a really interesting uh, counterweight or juxtaposition yes. to Trump and and I could see that playing in a general election well, or in a debate, right? A, a, you know, I'm comp- someone who's composed and smart and thoughtful. Mm-hmm. Um, I, I, that's the thing that I hear people who are most excited, who are excited about him. They always reference that he's a good person. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And it seems like people are just desperate for that in my <laughs> mind. They just want someone who's good yeah. um, in, in the position. So I, I, it's, it's, yeah, I don't, I don't know what will come of it. He's also multi of Maltese descent. And I know that doesn't mean anything to anyone <laughs> except for me. For you, but, yes, because uh, you spent uh, some time yeah, there. That's pretty exciting. <laughs> right. All my Maltese, so I, I, I spent time in Malta, and all my Maltese friends on, on social media are very excited. Is that his last name, the origin? Buttigieg? Buttigieg is a name. Okay. And we I learned something on. new. One other thing about him, though, is that he also is a Christian, and he wears religion on his sleeve. I, mean, I was going to mention a, a that. a deep thing for him. Yes. And he has been pushing Pence a little bit. So yes. there's been this back and forth over the last week and a half, uh, asking or calling out Pence to say, like, Trump is not somebody who embraces traditional Christian values, mm-hmm. and you are supporting this individual. And I don't know how that all plays out, mm-hmm. but it's really fascinating to see somebody on the left embrace the religion and yes. say this is this is a central part of who I am mm-hmm. and I'm curious how that is going to play out both in the primary and if he were to win the primary mm-hmm. the general election mm-hmm. I, I think in particular what I found interesting when he was having when he was um, calling out Pence was one of the things he said was that um, that his marriage has brought him closer to God right so being married to a man right brought him closer to God where usually we see these things as antithetical like being gay and being religious or being accepted by your religion and being gay and so I don't know this to be true but I have to presume at least that there is a pocket of people out there who need to hear that message Mm -hmm. that it's okay to be gay and to also feel like God loves me oh look here's the candidate who is that and is saying that and reflecting that and again I don't know how big that that group of voters is but it's even if we don't talk about it in terms of election, that's a really strong and important message to send. Mm-hmm. That's right. And someone someone should be saying it. Right. Let's slide down like five rungs, shall we? Okay. <laughs> I don't know. I forget who's next. Elizabeth Warren. Okay. All right. I was like, if this is... So okay. the Massachusetts senator became the first prominent candidate to dip toe into the race, announcing in an email to all supporters all the way back in December of 2018 that she was forming an exploratory committee. She's a progressive candidate who is likely best known for her widely criticized decision to release a DNA test to prove her claim to Native American heritage, a topic Trump has routinely attacked 
tagged her on. Uh, that decision has continued to hurt her in the polls, but she's getting big turnouts for her rallies and generating lots of funds as well. I must say, I must say she's a much better campaigner than I thought she would be. It almost feels as if there are two versions of, the Eliz- of Elizabeth Warren. Our listeners will be excited to hear that our very own Phil Barker, Dr. Phil Barker, will be introducing her next week when she visits Keene State College. This week. That's right. <laughs> yeah. So, Phil, why don't you start us off? Well, Warren has been spending a lot of time in New Hampshire. What's your sense of her campaign? Um, you know, she's a she's a candidate that I I don't. So, I was just looking at her odds. That predicted has her at seven. She's that, down. Yeah. That feels that's low. low. Yeah. Yeah. That's below Andrew Yang. Are you kidding? <laughs> no. no. So I, I, let me say something about that first. I, Nate Silver has been has talked to Nate Silver has real issues with markets and yeah. and likes to he gets a little touchy about them in a way that I think is you know maybe he needs to calm down a little bit. But his point about the markets that I think is valid is that markets are um, disproportionately uh, populated by young white people, young white men specifically, That's right? True. So young white men go to markets, and so the fact that Buttigieg and Sanders and Biden and Andrew Yang are all doing really well on those markets is probably not actually representative of, and, and I think I think Nate Silver's probably right on that. The fact yeah. that, that Andrew Yang is ranked higher than Elizabeth Warren is is telling. So here's my thing about Elizabeth Warren. I don't I I don't have a I go back and forth on on her odds, like how likely she is to win. The thing that I keep coming back around to is that she is incredibly smart. Mm-hmm. She has um, extensive policy proposals, more extensive than any other candidate, as far as I can tell. They're very progressive, right? So in the sense of that is that is depending on where you stand, either a pro or a con. But in terms of you know proximity to, if you like Bernie Sanders, right? She's she's kind of of that camp, mm-hmm. but at the same time is an established Democrat who has relationships within the party. Um, I, there's a lot of stuff. Like when I look at her on paper, I think she should be a really good candidate. Like right. she should be one of the front runners. Um, and she's n- not, but I don't know if that's, uh, I, I'd have to look at polls. I don't know that she's, I, I, I just, I, I, I sort of, ex- I'm sort of surprised that she's not doing better. Um, I just continue to be impressed with her. And, and when I look at stuff like, uh, uh, the, 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 the knocks against her are, you know, the, the DNA thing and some of her, the way she, she carries herself and, and that those, you know, she should be, the DNA thing was stupid and the, and, and like passing herself off as native American in her early law career was also dumb, right? She should, she should be critiqued for that, but that seems pretty minor in the grand scheme of things, right? In the grand scheme of what we're talking about, certainly whether we're talking about when she's running against Donald Trump, but again, the sorts of skeletons that if we're talking about skeletons and closets that Joe Biden or that other people have, it that still seems relatively minor. So I, I'm just, in, again, I mentioned on last week's podcast that I, I was reading about her um, and when she was teaching and when she was teaching law, um, her research was on the impact of policies on every on on an average American. So yeah. she was looking at like legal changes to bankruptcy laws and how mm-hmm. that carries out. And and that's the sort of thing that, again, if you gave me descriptions of candidates with no names on them, and you gave me one that they used to teach law, they research the impact of laws, they have extensive policy um, plans. I she she seems I I just I don't know. I mean I'll be interested to see how she do, does. I that doesn't mean that she will do well in the modern political environment but um i'm i'm surprised she's not like i think at seven cents she's underrated mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. i agree 
<clears throat> oh. I'm sorry. No, Is that because no. you want to talk? No. <laughs> wow, that was mean. No, no, because I was, was going to say something. No, please I was go ahead. The, again, the Midwestern planet. No, please um, go ahead. So... The thing about Elizabeth Warren that it, there's a lot of things about her that's very interesting, and I think what Phil said is so right, is that you look at her credentials on paper and you look at what she used to do. I mean, she was an expert on the news constantly, mm -hmm. particularly during the financial crisis. And she was, you know, well, well liked and well sourced, right? But then she runs for Congress, and of course, once you get into Congress, being well liked completely changes. And so um, she doesn't have the baggage of 2016 like Sanders does, which is good. But she does, like Phil said, she has that Democratic tag on her. But that's good for party loyalty, loyalists, which tend to come out. My concern is how most people know her is because Trump called her Pocahontas. Yep. And so to, to Phil's point about the her, you know, the DNA test and then her presentation as part Native American previously, that if the first introduction to her is that Trump made fun of her and called her Pocahontas, that's not going to make people really want to do any more digging. And so I think that the narrative written about her already, which I'm sure we'll talk about Kamala Harris, it's really hard for women candidates to write their own narrative, but it's already been way written for her and for, for Elizabeth Warren, and I think that's gonna be a challenge for her. Do, do you think that would shift in a, in a debate, like as people start to get to mm -hmm. know, like I, I feel like she would hold her own against Trump pretty uh, well. Oh no, I think, I think that you're right, And but my, again, to bring the gender dynamic into it is that if she goes, to use Nick's terminology, toe to toe, and, and even to what you say, Phil, like hold her own with him, she already is often perceived and discussed as brash and abrasive, which also people say about Trump, but it's a different connotation when mm -hmm. a woman is described that way. And so um, I think that the, the, the gender dynamics mm -hmm. would be challenging, more challenging than they already would be. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Nicholas? I just you're you're right, Phil. On paper, she seems like a really a really strong candidate. Um, I don't agree with seventy five to ninety percent of her policy choices, but I like she, those numbers. Yeah, yeah. that's a good, <laughs> that's a widespread. Um, I, I my my fear is is that as as much as again we would like to live in the world where a candidate like that should be at the forefront of whatever race we're talking about. We don't live in that world anymore, and we certainly don't live in it, you know, since uh, since 2016. Um, regardless of what narrative Trump has has kind of foisted on her, she's also taken the bait on a few things. And if we're talking about purely playing the political game um, and trying to counter what he's going to throw at her, which I'm sure will be a million times worse than it has been already, mm -hmm. I I don't see her being that walking that fine line between being forceful and intelligent and succinct and understandable from uh, uh, the the wider electorate. I just, I don't think she has... The folksiness? Yeah, yeah. it's just not there. I, yeah, it's it's that weird indefinable thing that you, you can't really know. Well, but. It's, it's going to test the campaign, right? I mean, so the, the DNA stuff was a disaster. Yeah. The rollout of the campaign, we talked about this last week as well, you know, the video of her having a beer mm. with her husband. Yeah, that was weird. It was bad, right? And so you've got to be better than that. Uh, that given Clinton the hurt bad. Yeah, so yeah. We'll, we'll see whether the campaign can evolve and when it comes to debates. But if she doesn't start polling better she may not even yeah. make that the big yeah. debates mm -hmm. she saw i saw somewhere the other day that uh there was a poll in massachusetts amongst uh, of democratic primary uh and and she was in like fourth place in her home state mm -hmm. amongst and that's that's a 
That's telling. Yeah, that's a bad yeah. sign. But She's this gotta... is also where the media coverage, they're not covering her. Right. And they drive poll numbers. And they drive, mm-hmm. again, mm-hmm. the signal of electability. And, and whether, you know, some scholars have talked about how we shouldn't talk about electability and it doesn't matter and it's gendered and it's racial. And, of course, oh, yeah, it's all of those things. But it's still real. And so she's not getting, even in her home state, enough traction to be seen as an electable candidate. Mm -hmm. I saw somebody made the comment that, uh, you know, uh, Mayor Pete um, has been had tons of media coverage. And and somebody uh, made the comment that he's made himself available, whereas Mm -hmm. a lot of, you know, Cory Mm -hmm. Booker and Harris and Warren, to a lesser extent, they have more to lose from a bad media president. And so it's not. I mean, there is some level of media bias involved, but it's also more that, you know, media, they want to talk to people. And if yeah. you're willing to talk to them, yeah. you're going to get lots of airtime. I thought that was an interesting, mm-hmm. uh, interesting uh, <coughs> take on things. I hadn't thought that yeah. way. Yeah. My, my only sort of back at uh, to go back at that is that the other three um, um, candidates you described are all senators. And so they're on committees and they're legislative. And Mayor Pete is sorry but a mayor and so he has a little bit more time on his hands this is a lot of potholes this time of year that's I mean, true yeah, yeah. Especially he's filling them by himself and yeah he's translating and yes. going to hospitals <laughs> okay this is gonna be a random tangent i heard him t- a mayor p talk about potholes and he, when he initially came into office, they had a policy to say that if you, you send a notification in, we'll try to get to a pothole within 24 hours or something. And then he studied it, and he realized that was a bad system. In fact, you're better off having a, a, a broader system, at, you know, like a, a grade or great system where you're going around addressing potholes holistically, and you're more likely to get your pothole done. So he did this analysis of, like, the best way to address your pothole needs. And then he came back to the people to say, I've looked at this. My initial policy wasn't the best one. We're going to try this other one. I don't understand Potholes that. are my number His three policy pop- was wrong? They're your yes. number three what? <laughs> yeah. What'd you say, Phil? You know, some people are like abortion voters. I'm potholes. That's number three on my there list. You number go. three right. on your list. <laughs> Here we go. All right, let's jump to the You're next the one. So, uh, Beto. So, our next look is at former U.S. Representative Beto O'Rourke uh, from the great state of Texas. Uh, Beto took social media by storm in his failed bid to unseat Republican Senator Ted Cruz. He announced on March 14th that he was in it to win it. Uh, Beto is most certainly a celebrity on the campaign trail, but there's been some fatigue among certain Democratic voters uh, with him. It's not at all clear that a celebrity will translate into a successful White House bid. That said, Beto in many ways is the ideal Democratic candidate. He's young, inspirational, and dreamy. Uh, Phil, well, let's start here again because you're from the great state of Texas and you're also pretty dreamy. Uh, we've ta- <laughs> I know. <laughs> we've talked about Beto before, but uh, not since there's been a bit of the backlash against him for going on Vanity Fair and doing all of this. So what's, what's your, your Texas take on Beto these days? Um, so I don't know if this is a Texas take. This is just a Phil Barker <laughs> take. Uh, my, my impression is he had... Uh, he had sort of everything going for him, right? He had this uh, this media story, lots of coverage, this sort of fanatic following. He had early major fundraising raising successes. Some of the photo ops and the stuff that came out when he first announced looked like his Senate campaign, which had been widely popular, you know, standing on, on tables. And, you know, he was at Keene State, and there were, like, crowds. of. I was shocked at how many people showed up to see him. Um, it feels to me like he's squandered that, um, that there's, he just hasn't, I, I don't, I, I'm still at a point where I don't, I've heard a couple of policy proposal type things <clears throat> that have come out. Um, uh, it, it seems like he had a whole lot of sort of capital available to him that he could have rolled out, turned into, um, a pretty impressive 
campaign and it doesn't see instead he's still driving around Iowa in his rented minivan or whatever um, <laughs> that, that doesn't mean that he's not he's not you know he he might have great policies but he's not I, I don't I don't know I think the if he continues to rely just on the sort of celebrity side of the of the campaign he's gonna there's gonna be a, a, a I think a rude awakening fairly quickly mm-hmm. I mean so predicted has him he's fallen down to 10 and I at this point the way he's run his campaign so far I would say that's overrated mm-hmm. um, I think he could right he could he could he's he's charismatic he's good at campaigning I think he could make an uh, um, a real impact but I at the way things are going I, I don't see that happening no i I mean i i in terms of presidential campaigns my opinion is that they're more about logistics than anything else and he doesn't seem to have the necessary experience currently to run a full-fledged really effective lightning campaign like some of the more organized um candidates are running currently and that's not saying that they're better candidates they're just better at playing the game i you know like i've i've said it half a dozen times on this podcast i think he could be a strong candidate i don't think that this is his cycle to do it so maybe learn a little bit Mm -hmm. you know sharpen your policies know how to talk to people don't make it your senate campaign evolve that a little bit um and, and go from there like do not do not waste this opportunity just because you think that you need to prove something or, you know, people are telling you that it's your time. This is, you know, yeah. just don't waste it. Mm-hmm. So, Susan, you've had a similar perspective where you felt like he jumped in a little bit too early. I Yes. Yeah. So similar to Nick, and I think I'm sure at least once on the podcast I said, you know, it's not his time yet. It's not. It's not. And one of the reasons I said it was because he did seem to be such a viable, legitimate candidate that they he should wait until he's running against, uh, not running against a sitting president. So I was surprised. But I think some of it was to Nick's point that he was being told it's your time, mm-hmm. you can do it. And so like that feels pretty good when the party and the establishment and they're telling you, you know, it's it's flattering when in this big pool that you could rise to the top. But I think he has a huge authenticity problem. I mm-hmm. really do. I mean, the things what Phil was saying, the things that made him successful in Texas are not working for him in a broader scale. And so driving through, you know, Iowa in this van to me seems not authentic. It seems very staged. And his announcement video with his wife and all of that just seemed not that that uh, that that charisma and the thing that drew people to him, especially, especially when you juxtapose him with Cruz, who has none of that, worked mm-hmm. very, very well in Texas. It doesn't work now. It's not working, I don't, and I don't think that it will work. And it's mm-hmm. interesting when you think about the two young guys, so Buttigieg and Beto O'Rourke, I would have bet that Beto had the better, posi- yes. was in the mm-hmm. better position. For sure. Uh, but he's, he's certainly he's lost ground. And the other thing is, he is not he's coming across as charismatic, but not particularly smart, mm-hmm. empty on policy. Absolutely. But he is a smart guy. He's yeah. another yeah, Ivy sure. Leaguer. When you hear him, when he when he rarely does go into those policy specifics, he's very very good. Mm-hmm. Yeah. But Buttigieg is doing that and winning and. Beto seems to have resigned to this. I'm going to let my superstar identity drive it, and you're, you're, I think you're all right. He's he's struggling. He also doesn't know what to do with his arms. He's got to learn what to do with that. <laughs> he's over so lanky, right? Years. So it's yes. like, what do I do? Just don't yes. wave them. Just yeah. on your side. <laughs> Just keep them down. Yeah. So I, I hear um, you know people talk about when they talk about Beto and and with with Buttigieg, the the analogy that's brought up a lot is Barack Obama, right? Mm-hmm. This sort of young. Uh, relatively unknown kind of blank slate people can like project onto them whatever they want um, 
I, you know, Barack Obama had more experience than either uh, Beto or, or Buttigieg at this time. So I, I, I guess my, my question is, who is, if there is a Barack Obama in this crowd, um, I mean, is it is it is it one of those two? Is it Harris, a, you know, a young senator who has a, is a, you know, a relatively new I realize we're going to talk about Harris yeah. in a minute, but is there one that is the the that kind of fits that analogy better than others? Yes, but he no one knows who he is. Julian Castro. Who, ah. mm. So if you would have asked me, and he's not on this list. We're not to talk about because <laughs> he's only at one cent, which is what pisses me out. Right? If you would have asked me months ago, and when some did, you know how how Julian Castro would do uh, to see him as low as he is, and the fact that he's getting no media coverage and no traction boggles my mind he's he's at the same level one percent as the rock right that's fucking oh. stupid and oprah so and nice. oprah right now, i'm so. Look, so i'm looking he's bumped up to two since the beginning yeah. of this of this podcast this podcast has pushed him up just mentioning his name alone <laughs> yep. you're yeah. welcome julian we don't even have to publish. Right. No, he does yeah. he does have you know serving in obama's administration that potentially could kind of you know weigh him down but Strictly on kind of the way that Phil was talking about it, I think that it's Julian Castro, and it's, he's getting more. It's nothing. It's oh, nothing. that's really interesting. Has he qualified nothing. for the debates? Will he be in the debates? So I think the way that they have it structured is sort of like the undercard and like the main event. I oh, think he's God. he's going to be on the undercard. Mm, yeah, hard to move up when you're. It, yeah, it it's going to be. Hmm. Yeah. All right, let's jump to Kamala Harris. Another candidate who appears to have some star power is Senator Kamala Harris. The first-term senator from California is the state's former attorney general. If successful, she would be the first woman African-American to win the nomination. Harris is drawn among the campaign's largest and most diverse crowds, building on an ability to ignite a bulwark of, bulk work of the party base, African-American women. Uh, she recently announced a plan to significantly increase teacher pay a proposal that pleased another important segment of the Democratic voters. But questions remain about her more conservative record as a California prosecutor. Suzanne, she's an exciting candidate, and I predicted she's she's also where where she, where she's she, at seventeen percent. She's she's I was she's just fourth. looking. She's like fourth, yeah, yeah. yeah. She's um, right up in that top tier. She really is in that top tier. So so what are you what are you thinking about her candidacy? Well, I mean, there's the obvious things that I, I you know we'll talk about about gender and about race and the things that deserve attention. And so to bracket that out and just look at you know the candidate instead. Um, she hits all of those five pockets better, and I think I mentioned this earlier in the podcast, better than any of the other candidates, right? Because she is biracial, so she is uh, both Indian and Jamaican, and so if we think about the Hispanic-Asian block, while well, you can't put them together, this is sort of how we sometimes think about them, and then obviously the, the black voters. And so, But then also young people. Young people respond to her, maybe not as much as some of the other candidates, but because she is a Democrat, she's been a Democrat party loyalist, We've and, and who have voted for a black candidate before, we have no reason to think that they won't again. Um, and she's leftist uh, left I should be careful left enough um, that she really has the uh, the best she's the best bet to, to coalition build so all of that's great but we can't not talk about the fact that she's a woman of color mm-hmm. we can't and even though she did a, she she fundraised well in the first quarter the coverage was it fell below expectations but if you think about how hard some of the coverage I should yeah. say because um, Bill's face was like not what I read um, but what we have to take into consideration is that for a woman to raise as much as a man is hard, and for a person of color to raise as much as a white person is hard. And so for the yeah. fact that a woman of color raised as much as she did, I think that signals something about the traction that she has in the race. Mm-hmm. So that's my, my yeah. first takes. Do you think her, um, her? I mean, the thing that she's taken the most heat on is her criminal 
justice or yeah. her like uh, you know hard on crime. Do you so that seems like that would work a, against her in yes. a Democratic primary mm-hmm. and for her in a general election. Do you <laughs> right. is it is it more a positive or a negative for her? I think it, I think it's going to be a positive, especially the way that she can spin that in a Democratic primary. If someone comes after her and says, you know, you over prosecuted, I think there are ways for her to be a law and order candidate that are not overly race-based, whereas typically when white candidates talk about law and order, it's code for race-based. So I think that there are ways that she could spin it in the primary that could actually serve her well, and then without flip-flopping, be the be a law and order candidate in a general election. And she's going to do well in the debates. I mean, oh, I think about you, you watch her yes. in the Senate. Yeah, you have to be careful. But yeah. she, her campaign seems very professional. They're bringing in big money. Yeah. I mean, the crowds are exciting. And I think she could seize upon that moment in the way that I'm not so certain Bernie will or even Biden, right? Mm-hmm. I think that there are going to be a couple that have the opportunity to jump up. And she strikes me as one who's got a real opportunity to to make a movement. I, I think for so many reasons it would be incredible to have her as the Democratic nominee Mm -hmm. for I mean for so many reasons that are both symbolic and also substantive but if I'm being a good political scientist electability still matters and and yes it should not be code for any white guy could win right but if you this is hard for me to even say but if you if you're a Democrat you want to beat Trump don't know if she's the candidate that can do that and so what does that mean for strategic voters Mm -hmm. as we funnel out those candidates and there's a couple left and she's the only either woman or person of color left. I don't know that she can get that nomination in the end for strategic mm, voters. That's interesting. And it's so, it yeah. sucks. Like, I hate saying those things. Because that makes sense to me with Warren, right? I think they say, like, you know, the Pocahontas stuff is, is just going to be fodder for Trump. Yes. But she feels distinct. Where, oh, yeah. But you, you think that the same thing could happen. I do. Strategic voting, where they say, I do. Go, with the, go with the young white guy or go with the old white I'll guy. Go with the old white yeah. guy. And I think in the debates, because so much of it is framed as who won and who lost and who shot harder mm-hmm. and shot better, that even if she were to come in air quote calm you know her calm may still be higher than a baseline calm that people are comfortable with and so she's the angry black woman yeah and obviously again like we said before if she if she takes takes trump to task and gets assertive it also reads you look at how obama when he had to debate right and when he presented himself as president for eight years he had to avoid being the angry black man in ways where people thought he was cool he was aloof he doesn't care enough she doesn't come across that way. She cares, right? And when she takes senators to task and when she takes members who are testifying in front of her committee, she takes them to task. But it's different on a debate stage. Mm-hmm. And I hate that those gender and race dynamics are there, but it's reality. And as a prosecutor, we're just starting to see some of those cases that she's dealt with. that mm-hmm. are So those potentially could be some skeletons, hard choices mm-hmm. that she made. Yes. But in the limelight of a campaign could not always play well with the broader public. I think that's right. So- you heard it here first. Suzanne says you should only vote for a white man. I did. <laughs> That's right. I said it. Mark it down. Uh, Thanks, Phil. <laughs> I will say of, of the handful of candidates I'm excited to see play out, I think she's one yes. of them that I'm, I'm, yeah. I'm curious about. Her, you know, Warren, Beto, and Buttigieg and all of them. I, but I think she's one. She's going to be fun to watch. She's going to be on campus as well in like a week and a half. And yeah. I, I'm, I'm excited to see her in in person and i I, she seems to have yeah it'll it'll be interesting to see how 
it moves forward. I think fun to watch is is right, but I think what I, I would argue is more important is to just see a woman of color in the conversation on as part of the main event, so to speak, yep. right? Like we, you know, Shirley Chisholm was the last one to do this, and she did this 50 years ago, and Kamala Harris is paying a lot of homage to her and her campaign materials. I think that's important. I think, and she has, she and Cory Booker both have talked so openly about systemic inequality. And they didn't have to, and because Obama didn't, and he couldn't, and so I think that this movement is really important. Well, and she's got deep pockets right now. I mean, oh, it sounds yeah. like she's raising money where I mean, she can stick around to the convention as long as things keep going. And I yep. think that that's important as well. I agree. Mm-hmm. It's part of the conversation. Yes, mm-hmm. I agree. This was fun, Nick. Yes. Um, yeah. Good. Yeah. yeah. Good. We're good. <laughs> <laughs> um, Sorry, I'm I'm all over the place and not looking at uh, the the outline. It's time to do your thing, Nick. It's time to do my thing. <laughs> <laughs> there you so go. Everybody... Well, if we were, if there were people still listening, they're not listening anymore. <laughs> or if, some, if somebody fell asleep yeah. during the yeah yeah, we're not paying for your car speakers. We're just I'm putting that out there right now. <laughs> oh, I'm really glad I never yeah. have this other ear on. <laughs> Sorry, guys. <laughs> Told you I was tired. <laughs> um, if if you like the podcast outside of ruining your hearing, um, follow us on Twitter at Barso Paul P O L, Facebook at Barso Politics, uh, the podcast, uh, SoundCloud, uh, Spotify, iTunes, uh, Google Play Music, Stitcher, most major podcasting platforms. Uh, beers, uh, check out Untapped on iOS or Android. Look for Barstool Politics, uh, and then predict it. Um, a real money pro- uh, political prediction market where you can uh, buy and sell shares in future political events. Mm-hmm. Barstool Politics listeners uh, who open up a new account, uh, you can receive up, up to a twenty dollar match on your first deposit. Um, just use our promo link, predictit.org/promo/barstoolpol20 uh, to check that out. Um, Suzanne, thanks as always for joining us. It was great. Thank this you fun. so much. Oh, lots of good insight. I love it. Thank you. And uh, we will see you guys next week. Whatever <laughs> week that is. Sounds good. <laughs> see you guys later. Cheers. Cheers. Shut up and sit down.